0: Hello, everyone uh, listening in on this broadcast. My name is Brandon Jurwa. I am a comic book writer known for G.I. Joe, Highlander, and, uh, of course, Battlestar Galactica Zarek, which is coming out this fall from Dynamite Entertainment. Some of you may know that the character of Tom Zarek on the new sci-fi channel Battlestar Galactica series is portrayed by none other than Richard Hatch, and I have him right here with me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> How are you doing? How are I'm you doing, fine. Richard? I'm, 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 I'm intact. Uh that's, that's all I can say at the moment. I've been extremely busy, but uh, it's been a great time for me.
0: That's uh, that's the best anyone can hope for, I think. I'd like to, to make a quick acknowledgement for our, our wonderfully patient engineer, the evil professor, Noel Gross, who is uh, beaming this transmission to you from a satellite high above the great state of Texas. And uh, thank you, Noel, for all your hard work, your box containing 1,000 virgins will be arriving shortly. I hope I remembered to poke holes in the box this time. Okay, Richard. (laughs) I appreciate you being here with me this evening.
1: Oh, this is great.
0: The big question for me is how many times a year does some jerk walk up to you and say, hey, you looked really different on Survivor?
1: (laughs) 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 I'm sorry. I almost choked on that. Uh, well, it, it has happened more than I would like to admit. Um, I cannot tell you how that man's fame has complicated my life. I mean, <laughs> more people. I mean, if they mention my name, the, the first thing that people say, unfortunately, my name, Richard Hatch, actor, Gap Bowser Galactica, All My Children in the Streets of San Francisco, all the projects that I've been involved in has been obscured by the survivor, Richard Hatch, so that when they mention Richard Hatch on the news, or somebody says to somebody, I know Richard Hatch, the first word out of their mouth is, how do you know him? Isn't he in jail? And, uh, you know, how could he have done what he did? And blah, 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 blah. And they have to always come back and explain, no, we mean the first, the original, the one, the only uh, Apollo, Richard Hatch. Um, so anyway, I, it, 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 it has been a problem, I mean, I hate to say it, it was fun, kind of funny for a moment, amusing, but it has gotten in the way, uh, and I, unfortunately, um, when you have somebody that's famous with your same name, uh, it can be very confusing for people.
0: Well, yeah, I, I uh, have no fear of that myself, I know for a fact that, uh, that my family represents all of the existing Jorahs on the face of the planet Earth. Uh, so I'm covered in every way, shape, and form, and uh, any anything I'm accused of, unfortunately, I will probably be guilty of. Uh, so you you have been, as as you mentioned, uh, involved with a lot of projects. You uh, you've been on everything from all my children to uh, the Love Boat to to Baywatch to Kung Fu to Murder She Wrote, and uh, I I mean, if you don't mind, I you know, let could you share a little bit with everybody listening, just to, uh, sort of a your impressions of your career thus far, and where you've been, and where you're going?
1: <laughs> Boy, what a question! Um, the, well, first of all, I, I, in my career, I've been everywhere. <laughs> I've been to hell. I've been to heaven. Uh, I've been to the den of iniquity. Um, I've been to the dark side. I've been to the light side of the force. Um, I mean, honestly, it's a career is a roller coaster ride, and and obviously, like many actors. There are many shows that I've done that I wish I could uh, somehow buy up and dig a big, deep hole and bury uh, those shows in uh, because, you know, we as actors never know sometimes when we get involved in something whether it's going to be good or bad and what how it's going to be edited. And unfortunately, sometimes you don't know until you see it on TV like everybody else. Um, but I certainly have been blessed and being part of some very, very good shows, and I've been blessed. I guess blessed, I'll say blessed, uh, and being part of some very, very um, bad shows. So I think if somebody was watching my career, they would be a little confused, maybe a little neurotic, trying to ascertain whether Richard Hatch is a wonderful actor or a horrible actor. But nevertheless, there's been some, uh, some extraordinary things that I got a chance to do. Dead Man's Curve, playing the true life story of, uh, of rock stars, Jan and Dean. Got to play Jan Berry, who died uh, recently. Uh, who had a severe head injury and had to struggle with that most of his life. I got to play a real-life living character while he was alive, which is rare, and uh, also got to you know do some uh, incredible work with uh, Peter Ustinov, people like that, on uh, Charlie Chan, The Chris of the Dragon Queen, which uh, was a wonderful piece. Where I actually got to star with Michelle Pfeiffer in one of her first movies. Where I was as, as Richard Hatch and Captain Apollo 28 years ago, what I have grown to today is that I am much more comfortable in my own skin and I was struggling with all my demons uh, back in you know, the 70s and struggling to kind of come to terms with all my fears and insecurities and issues and, and so I feel like as an actor, I have grown tremendously and as a, as a person I have grown absolutely tremendously and, and I think that work is reflected in, in the work that I'm doing with Tom Zarek on the new Battlestar Galactica series. Uh, I've come to a place where I'm, I'm just more connected on a deep level um, to who I am. And as I've said to so many other people, rather than just kind of going to war with those parts of yourself you don't like, you start to just embrace and accept and forgive and love yourself just as you are. It doesn't mean that you're not growing or learning. It just means that you start to kind of become comfortable in your skin and from that point, I think it's really allowed me to do some of the best work that I've ever done in my life.
0: Here, here. You spoke about uh, going to war in a, in a figurative sense. Uh, and I don't know if this is going to fall into the category of what you perceive as good or bad, but uh, you are a seasoned veteran of uh, two shows that I consider myself to be uh, a long-lost art form. And I'm speaking of Battle of the Network Stars and oh my uh, Circus of the <laughs> Stars. Right, And uh, I think those shows are personally long overdue for a comeback, especially, you know, in the age of reality TV. Do you, you have any good stories from uh, Circus of the Stars or Battle of the Network stars? It seems like it's a right playground for terror. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I do have some stories. And uh, first of all, many people in the Circus of the Stars were doing kind of what gimmick tricks they were doing tricks and things like this that, that you normally see in a circus, but you know, they're kind of gimmicky and, and basically they just take somebody setting up the trick, making it look difficult or scary. And, uh, it looks good on TV and good drama, but you know, the, the actor really didn't have to challenge themselves. Now there were other tricks, which are, I don't call tricks, but other events like walking the high wire, like the trapeze, which I ended up doing. And, these particular events you couldn't fake these these particular events we were asked to go out there and really work out for almost two months before the show and basically be trained by bob yerkis who was a stuntman man and circus man who used to be a catcher in the circus basically has a place way out in the, the middle of the fernando san fernando valley where he's got trapezes high wires uh high falls set up where stunt guys usually go out and train And any circus people coming through town can go out there and work out. And this is a place where several of us, including, by the way, Brooke Shields at one point. She used to be out there when she was like 15, 16. Many, many of the the stars from the shows at that time uh, were out there working out. And it became like a little family. I mean, we were all athletic, and we all, you know, really got into it. And we were all scared every day because you were doing something you've never done before, something that really had a certain level of risk to it. So we worked out for, for two months and went up and, and did it. I did the trapeze uh, twice. I actually did a double, uh, which I caught once. Um, I injured myself many times um, on the high wire. I did a forward roll, a headstand, uh, rode a bike on the, uh, on the high wire and basically stood up on the, uh, the seat of the bike and uh, held uh, one of those things overhead. almost touched the top of the tent, by the way. Um, that's how high up I was. And, and basically, I mean, I love the thrill of it, the challenge of it. And, again, we all had a ball. We all went to Vegas. You know, us would-be uh, athletes who, who really like to go out there and, you know, push the limit, we got a chance to do that. And the, and the funny part is I got to a point and, and I got two stories to tell that, that should be interesting. One is I injured myself very severely doing the forward roll, practicing it. I had practiced so many times and bruised my back rolling on that little thin wire, that I got a huge, horrible spasm. I rolled over the wire, and I rolled off, and I could could not stand up. I was the most intense pain of my life. So I now had to go take care of myself and find some kind of relief for this incredible pain and at the same time make a decision about whether I was going to go the next week. It was only a week away when I would have to be in Vegas and perform the event. And I cannot tell you to this day why I did this But I told them that I was going. And basically for the next week, I had a good friend, uh, Robin, come over and basically hold me all through the night, putting hot packs, cold packs on my back. I tried every kind of alternative therapy I could take. I took every kind of painkiller. I was in most incredible pain, could not sleep. And by the next week, I had not been able to work out. I I had not really accomplished a forward roll once without falling. In fact, uh, I had one of the trainers actually tell me, you should fake it. You should get up and forward roll and almost miss the the wire and then catch it with your hand and pull yourself over and make it look really dramatic. And, of course, when you try to fake it and make it look like it's tougher than it is, it's almost impossible to do that uh, unless you are the most skilled person at what you're doing. And, obviously, we were only training for a couple of months. So I let that go, and I had basically been trying to just accomplish the event the right way so here I am, a week out, not having ever really accomplished the forward roll completely, and, and I'm in all this pain, and the next week comes, and slowly I'm able to crawl on the ground. The day before we leave for Vegas, which is only four days away from the event, I can barely stand up, only after kind of stretching on really deeply, very slowly, for almost an hour to get my back to stretch enough to stand up with intense pain. And I'm still going. Again, I cannot tell you why. Um, All I know is that this woman that helped me, every day she sat there, hot packs, cold packs, she held me, helped me get through the pain, and she goes to Vegas with me. And we get there, and of course I can't even work out. I'm still planning to do this. The warrior in me was determined not to let two months of training go down the, the drain. And we get to the day of the event, but I'm walking in great pain. Now the thought of going back up on a high wire, which I had not even practiced the forward roll on, in front of the cameras and the audience, I imagine doing all of that, having never even accomplished it once in training, having been injured severely, having not even had a chance to go back up and rehearse. I stretch for three hours in the slowest, most agonizing way, and finally my event comes, And I walk up this slanted wire from the ground, up to the top, never been up that high, and then I walk out to the middle of the wire, I put the pole down across the wire, put my head down on the wire, took a deep breath, rolled over, and you know what happened? I rolled off the wire, and my hand reached up, grabbed it with my finger, pulled myself up over the wire, Meanwhile, the pole, which fell out of my hands bounces along the wire. It doesn't fall down. Literally bounces along the wire and bounces into the hand of the guy at the end of the wire waiting for me. Bounces into his hand. I pull myself over the wire. I get myself up on the wire without a pole, and I stand up and without a pole, balance myself and walk over to him. He hands the, the pole, the uh, cross pole, back to me, I walk backwards, put the pole back down on the on the wire, put my head back down on it, and do the roll again, perfectly. And I stand up, put the pole over my head to a standing ovation.
0: All wow. I can tell you
1: is, I it was the most extraordinary moment after all I had been through, and to accomplish it that way, in the most dramatic theatrical way possible. Now. That was a great story, okay? And I can only tell you this also. What normally, and I've been injured before with a bad back, I've been injured before where it took three months, sometimes six months for a spasm of that level to unlock. And I've had to go to the hospital a few times. That, right after I did that event, do you know that the, the day, the next day, I was already able to walk three times better than I could walk, and within a week, my back was almost healed. What normally, what should have taken three to six months, within two weeks, was healed and I cannot tell you why because all the doctors that looked at it said I was absolutely nuts not to be in a hospital bed in traction. So that was one story. The next story is that I got taken out the next year by the uh, by the circus executive producers. And they take me to the nicest restaurant And, you know, they're always talking about which events you're going to do this year and and what would you like to do, and we'd love you to come do this. And so they're taking me out to this nice restaurant with the best champagne, crystal Champagne, and they're just pouring it into my glass. Every time I drink it, it's gone, it's filled. I get a real, real big buzz after about an hour and a half, two hours of talking, conversation, and they're not talking about anything to do with the circus. Finally, they come up and they go... When I'm totally sloshed, they say, we want to talk to you about what we'd love to have you do this year. And I said, Uh what's what's that? And they go, well, we we were thinking about putting you in a straitjacket and taking you up about 5,000 feet and pushing you out of the airplane. Whoa. Yes. Yes. That explains the champagne. Yes. Now... I was not quite sure if they actually loved me or they didn't love me, and I finally got the message. I finally realized that they didn't love me at all, and I, of course, said no. That was one of the best decisions of my life. Uh, I decided that that was just a little too risky.
0: Well, I I don't mean to alarm you regarding what what could have been a near-death experience, but I I heard that in the late 70s, uh, ABC executives tried to feed Hervé Villachez to a lion. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying.
1: No, no, I think they mistook him for food.
0: You know, I, over the last few months in, in writing the, the Tom Zarek book and, and having to create this life history for this character, you know, I, I've kind of gotten to know Tom, or at least I, I hope to God I've gotten to know Tom, and I, I've come to the conclusion that, that as a character, if they ever make a Tom Zarek action figure, all he really needs is a big spoon. Like, <laughs> because he just the guy just stirs up crap left and right. <laughs> and, and his intentions his intentions are so driven towards what he believes I think what he believes is the greater good and I think that that his perspective on that may be a little screwy at times, but I, I think that in his mind that this is not an evil character by any stretch of the imagination. he is a guy who really thinks that his way is right and and that i mean that 's something that that i 've tried to deliver on in the scripts but what, what will season three hold for Tom Zarek that, that you can share? Where, where is Tom Zarek going now that we have seen him on New Caprica? We know that, that he is presumably still hooked up <laughs> with uh, Gaius Baltar, although yeah. I can't imagine Tom Zarek is going to, uh, to have much patience for a Cylon occupation. Where is Tom Zarek going, or, or can you tell us?
1: Unfortunately, we can't really tell people anything about where the show's going, only because uh, we would be um, strung up by our thumbs, uh, <laughs> our toes, or something else I won't mention. But it, it's very difficult um, to say too much without giving something away. So, and again, I, I don't know a lot, only because the writers don't tell you everything, which is—it's always a surprise, at least to me when I get a script, I never quite know what's coming down the pike or what I'm going to end up doing or, or where the character is going. So there's lots of twists and turns. And my character kind of tends to come in, go away, come in at certain times when you least expect him. He sticks a wrench in the works, stirs up, as you said, the dust. I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, this is a big cast. There's a lot of characters in this show and every one of them has, has, has a, a wonderful, interesting backstory. And in Everyone deserves to have their story told. So sometimes it takes time to really flesh out all the characters. You know, obviously some of the the central main characters that are on the show get fleshed out a little quicker. And then uh, as the show continues, um, more and more of the characters get fleshed out. And I think that's what makes a great show uh, great is that the characters from the top to the bottom are fully dimensional uh, and and grounded and, and connected. And so you're always learning more about your character as you go. And I'm sure the character is building in the author's mind, the writer's mind, as it continues to go on. So there's nothing fixed or finite, nothing frozen in stone. But the characters do start to take on more and more clarity, and you start to get a stronger sense of who they are. And with with my character, I I feel very much like you feel. I feel like good people are capable of doing bad things under the right conditions. In fact, if I've learned anything, we're all human, we're all flawed, we're all imperfect. We're all capable of crossing over that line to the dark side when we least expect it. Sometimes we cross over and don't even know it. Sometimes our best intentions, we do evil things. And if we've been deeply wounded or have been unjustly judged, we are all capable uh, when we become damaged psychologically, emotionally, physically, mentally, We're all capable of doing horrible things, trying to come to terms with that anger, that frustration towards humanity, towards society, towards the powers that be. And uh, anyone who spent time in prison, I mean, when I look at Nelson Mandela, the one thing that really uh, amazes me is how a man could go through all of that and not come out hateful, wanting to bring down society, especially his society that is an extraordinary man to have gone through everything he went through and to have come out the other side intact. But not everybody is so lucky to to have that happen. And uh, I think that Tom Zarek is a deeply wounded, idealistic revolutionary who has always fought for the common good, but who has been incarcerated for over 20 years, who has been deeply wounded on all levels, has a great distrust of society, of laws, of government And uh, obviously paid a huge price trying to fight the powers that be. And one of the things that people sometimes seem to forget is they always think the person who fights the powers that be is the bad guy. But have we not learned in this world that uh, there are many people who are in positions of government, of power, that aren't necessarily the good guy? There are good people and bad people in government. And we have to come to realize that sometimes the person who is the, the rebel Sometimes it's the one who's got it right. But unfortunately, sometimes the path from the rebel to actually moving in to institutions of power and, and gaining power, as we've seen in history, the rebel becomes the leader, becomes the president, becomes the dictator. And all of a sudden, the so-called rebel with idealistic uh, humanitarian you know, motivations turns out to be the worst of the worst. Power corrupts. Um, and maybe... Maybe when you've suffered too deeply, you're corrupted on a deep, profound level. And uh, may, many times you're not able to, to come back, to fight your way back to the light. I think Tom Zarek, uh, the jury is still out. I think he struggles with his dark side. He struggles with his anger, at society, and humanity, uh, his distrust. And uh, I think he, But he, he's become extremely smart. He's a very smart man. And I think he has become wise enough to understand that if you fight from outside, you end up uh, on the gallows, imprisoned, dead, and that uh, he has to be smart enough to fight the battle from within. And I think that that's why he entered into politics. That's why he's enter- entering into the mainstream of the fabric of society and fighting his war there, learning how to play the chess game better than anybody else. But I think. Ron Moore is exploring a lot of very profound issues that are confronting us in our our very provocative times. And he's doing it in a very artful, very powerful, uh, heart-rendering, emotional, compelling way. I mean, that's what great art is all about, and uh, somebody is beginning to build a very powerful block of very strong shows on a sci-fi channel, so it's nice to know that, unlike what we had 28 years ago, we had executives who didn't understand science fiction, who didn't like Battlestar, didn't get it, didn't want it on, so we never had the support that, fortunately, this show is getting. This show is, it has executives that are supporting this show, and again, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, so I, I may be absolutely, totally wrong about this, but... from the executives i met they really seem to appreciate what this show is about and really support where ron moore is taking it but as always there's always multiple cooks in the kitchen everybody has their own idea what should be done or or should not be done but uh nevertheless from what i've seen this show has been allowed to really explore uh ron moore's vision and, and obviously david ikes and uh and all the other writers and creative artists that are on board so uh Something is being done right here. Uh, I take my hat off to everybody from the top to the bottom here.
0: And as an aside to the listeners, please keep in mind Richard's passion words about the Sci-Fi Channel. The next time it's Tuesday at 11 p.m. and you're watching Mansquito. <laughs> you know, keep that in mind. You, know, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. Well, uh, moving on, and and, uh, I want to wrap this up with you here. Uh, I'm afraid poor Noel has gone into a coma at this point. Um, (laughs) I I, I wanted to to give you an opportunity to uh, speak to everyone about the Magellan Project and also the book, So Say We All.
1: So Say We All. I got asked to be the uh, guest editor on it to write the foreword and also uh, introduction, I should say, and uh, to write an essay. What So Say We All is... It's a novel that has some 30 essays by different writers from all over the country who explore the Battlestar Galactica, both old and new, mystique, myth, backstory, what it's about, what they like, what they don't like. It's really a a pretty interesting, honest, in-depth exploration of the show by both men and women writers. But it, it allows the reader, I think, to gain some very profound insights about what really is being explored on the show and why, and where it might be going, and I think the, the fans will really, really love it just because it will open up some doors of perception, some fields of thought, things to discuss, and I'm sure many people over a, a nice cool one, or over a cup of tea, have more often than not had a deep, profound discussion watching Battlestar. So this allows you to maybe enter into some of these wonderful writers' minds and see what they think about the show and what they think works and what doesn't work and what they love and what they what they think the the metaphors mean and 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 what they really really see on a on a very very deep profound level. So uh, I think they have a treat in store for them uh, in this book, and uh, obviously we'll have uh, some things up on battlestargalactic.com letting people know where they can order the book or or get it. In in terms of Magellan, I've been working on this for several years, and I created some trailers, as people know, and I'm updating those trailers because the story has continued to grow and evolve within me. Sometimes you get a seed idea from deep, deep in your gut, and sometimes it's a feeling, a thought, an idea, a seed idea, and it takes a while for it to gestate and, and slowly to bring it forward and to allow it to kind of evolve and take form and shape. And this is the way it's been with this Magellan idea. I've always wanted to explore the prodigal son. The son that leaves home, falls off the cliff, goes into the world, loses his way, falls to the dark side, a little bit like is explored in uh, metaphorically in, in, in Star Wars with Vatican and then fights his way back. You know, they always talk about the prodigal son when he returns home is actually honored more than the son who never left. So I always found it interesting. What is it in that journey? Why is it that that son who returns is honored? And can a man or woman who has crossed the line and maybe fall into the deepest of their own darkness, can they find their way back? And is there a reason why they get lost in the first place? Is it part of all our journeys to leave home to go out into the world and to have to meet our our dark side. Are we thrown into the dark side for a reason where we have to struggle with that part of ourselves and then somehow find our way back to the light, only wiser, more knowledgeable, and maybe maybe having become the master of our dark side so that we no longer fall victim to it. Uh, I always found uh, that an interesting premise, and I thought, you know, if you're not a master of your dark side, you're always going to fall victim to it. And we've seen this over and over again with many of our leaders or many of our church leaders. Many of these people we put up on pedestals, all of a sudden they fall and we find out that they were doing this or doing that or sleeping with, you know, women behind the woman's back or they were doing some horrible thing. Uh, we always find sometimes a so-called good person doing bad things. So I thought, you know, we all are flawed, imperfect. We all have temptation. We all struggle with our own dark side inside. But it seems that on a larger level, a a metaphorical level, that uh, exploring that journey of all of us where we leave our home, metaphorically speaking, are cast out into the world and lose our way, get caught up in our appetites, um, greed, selfishness, uh, ego, all the things that we fall victim to, find our way to the dark side and uh, in, in the case of Magellan, to the darkest of the dark, to the deepest dark of the dark, a place where no man or woman has ever returned from. And I wanted to explore that journey back. And uh, that's, that's what Magellan's all about. And so it, 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 this is something I've been evolving and developing now for several years. And finally, I made a deal to do graphic novels. The graphic novel of, of Magellan will be out in, in March They were doing the first novel of Magellan that will be out this coming year in spring. Uh, We're also doing the the role-playing game was actually tested at uh, DragonCon and will be coming out in the next couple of months. And then uh, I'm now raising the money to develop a, uh, God, many, many things I want to do, a CD-ROM game. Uh, I would like to develop either an animated or a movie or something of, of Magellan, uh, or whatever we we end up developing with this will be forthcoming in the next couple of years. So that that's been kind of my what's what I want to call my legacy. I think we all create things. We all have things that we want to say, you know, to the world or share with the world. But we I think we all have a gift, a vision. Something that we feel strongly inside ourselves uh, that we would like to explore and and uh, and share with the world. And this is kind of what's been coming out of me. It's it's been something that I have been delving into for quite some time. And maybe because I'm living in a 9/11 world and looking at all the chaos and all the craziness and all the stuff that has kind of come out from behind the uh, the wall, we're seeing. We're seeing the dark side of life and uh, the dark side of human nature, and uh, it's scary.
0: That sounds very, very, very intriguing. And uh, How many varies did I just use there? I think it was 17 varies, wasn't it?
1: Uh, I liked it. Whatever it was, the very is is an excellent word.
0: Thank you, thank you. It's a very excellent word. (laughs) Uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time. Uh, The uh, Battlestar Galactica Zarek book from Dynamite Entertainment will be hitting the shelves, and I uh, hope you'll pick up all four issues. And uh, I hope you'll also check out So Say We All, and uh, also the fine Magellan uh, products that uh, that Richard mentioned, the role-playing game, the comic book,
1: the uh, potential CD-ROM. Is that correct? We have the graphic novel with Alan Brooks and Chris Shai, who we're doing the artwork for, the 32-pager. It might actually be more pages, and 72-page graphic novel. And, uh, and then the novel, the novelization of uh, Magellan coming out uh, in the spring, along with a role-playing game, and then we're working on the CD-ROM game and several other things to do with Magellan.
0: Fantastic. Hopefully there so, will by be way, uh, you should... boxes and action
1: figures coming as well. <laughs> no, what you should know is, by the way, one thing I can't say is, if you love season one and two, you will be blown away by season three. Honestly, it's some of the best writing that I have ever seen in my life as an actor, as a writer, as, a, as, as an artist. It's blowing me away. I can't. I, I think every actor who opens up the script and reads the material that they're getting feels blessed, looks in the mirror, and thanks God that they're on this show getting to play a character and to getting a chance to do the, this kind of material. It, it is absolutely the, one of the highlights of my life.
0: And that's saying something. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty bad, pretty bold statement to have for a guy who's yep. been doing this for a few years. Um, if you get a chance, uh, if you haven't already, to uh, to read the Zarek scripts.
1: I, I just started reading it, and... Uh, Thank you, because I'm learning about my backstory, which I never knew. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and what's funny about it, it's obviously you're doing, you're creatively doing this, and I, did you, did you get an outline of the backstory? Oh, no, no,
0: no, no. They, they, they said to me, keep it in continuity and do as you will. And then, you know, it, it all goes back to, to Ron's office and I get notes from them. Okay. And
1: I've been not only very impressed, but it is for me, heaven to be finding out about my history because I've never been given a history. I had to surmise what it was. And I have told them so many people about Sagittarian and about, they automatically take me as a, as a political terrorist and that I'm some horrible person, not realizing the conditions and the situations from which all of that sprung. So what's so nice for me and what I'm so happy that other people are going to see is that there's justifications. So why Tom's there? Because he is, you know. I
0: was absolutely refusing, refusing in in my mind. I didn't have to argue this with anybody, but I, I refused to uh, make him a victim because I don't. I don't think that he is a victim. I think that that his actions have brought about some bad circumstances for himself, yeah. and I think that there have been people who have su- tried to suppress him over time. But uh, I couldn't go the route of eh, Daddy spanked me too hard, and now I'm a villain. You know, I right. just, I couldn't.
1: Do that. no, that's, a, that's and, a cliche
0: yeah yeah absolutely and and I just I wanted him to try to do the right thing and fail and then try to do the right thing and succeed and find that that succeeding was maybe not like you said you know yeah, the the revolutionary finds the seat of power and then it turns him into something even worse you know I okay. so appreciate your time and you're doing oh, you're a welcome. fantastic job on the show I like you need my assessment of your acting skills but you Seriously, they they need to throw an Emmy at your head, and uh, you need to catch when it comes.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: My my wife and I during uh, Bastille Day, when we first watched it air, we just we sat there just on the edge of our, literally on the edge of the (laughs) couch, you know, just like, oh my God, and uh, it just it blew us away. And uh, you're doing great. Thank you, Richard. I'm so proud of you.
1: Thank you. (laughs) So.
0: Uh, Well, he's Richard Hatch. I'm Brandon Jurwa. The guy running the controls is the uh, absolutely irresistible Noel Gross, and we thank him for his help here. Good night, everybody. I guess we should probably talk a little turkey uh, about the new Battlestar Galactica, uh, because I'm I'm sure that there are more than a few people tuning in to get some scoop on that. So my first question to you is, when you heard that Ron Moore was launching this reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, What were your first impressions, and from there, how did you end up with the role of Tom Zarek?
1: I didn't hear about Ron Moore. I heard that they were going to reimagine rather than continue the show. And when that decision came down, I didn't know who was involved. All I knew was the Sci-Fi Channel had decided to reimagine. Now, you have to understand that I had spent four years going up to Universal, going to Sony, having multiple meetings, talking, discussing, bringing back Battlestar, actually going and putting together a four-minute trailer creating a website, BattlestarGalactica.com, which, believe it or not, was available at the time. They had not bought the domain. And also, at the time I was doing it, remember, uh, NBC did not own Universal. It was owned by Seagrams. And Rainbow came in and bought it. And then ultimately, NBC, which is the company that, no, that eventually discovered and realized that they had a gold mine with Battlestar and realized they had something of great value. And that's when the green light finally came. But the four years I was five years I was actually trying to bring it back, was under Seagram's and uh, Vivendi. And we'd done everything, including offering to buy it over the consortium of financial interests put together. We'd gone in to buy it. I had talked to Sony about doing a CD-ROM game. They wanted it for Sony PlayStation 2, but they could never make a decision early enough to develop the game and get it out and launch it when Sony PlayStation 2 actually came out. So, so many projects that we were pushing and trying to put together kept falling through the cracks. And so it was a great deal of frustration for me and many, many others that were involved in trying to motivate the studios to bring back Battlestar. So when I finally, oh, I'm sorry, the next part of that is, is that Tom DeSanto, and people have read this story before, but Tom DeSanto and Brian Singer, after I had finally said, gotten the final no from Universal, uh, I had moved on to creating a production company, Merlin Quest Entertainment. And putting together the great War of Jelen, which I've been developing for the past, I would say, almost six or seven years. Tom DeSanto, who ultimately was the producer of X-Men 1 and 2, along with Brian Singer, he had been a big Battlestar fan. Huge, and I mean huge. And he had always wanted to bring back Battlestar, and he had gone up there a few years later. I don't know exactly the same time frame as me or a couple of years after, I'm not sure. All I know is that he tried to get in the door and they wouldn't even take his call. It was only after the success of X Men One or Two that they finally said, Hey, come on over, Tom, we'd love to talk to you and uh, you know, and Brian about doing a project with us and they came in the door and when they sat down and the executive asked them, you know, well, what's on your mind? What would you like to do? Let's let's see if we can put something together. And when they mentioned doing Battlestar Galactica, uh, I think everybody's jaw dropped in the room while the executive they couldn't believe that the one show that these two guys wanted to do was Battlestar Galactica. And so I got to know you know, Tom. Tom had uh, contacted me, and I found out that they were putting together a continuation, very much like what we had been pushing for for five years. Obviously different, and obviously Tom's story, but uh, nevertheless, a continuation. And so it went into development, and it was green-lighted. So that was the next thing that we heard. And most of the fans were very, very excited, obviously, being a continuation. And most of those fans had loved X-Men, so all was well. And then, uh, of course, that went on for about a year, and, and all of a sudden, when it got close to going into pre-production and sets were being built, something happened. God knows what that was, but nevertheless, right. the ongoing sequel got derailed and fell apart. I think uh, everybody was, was very disappointed, thinking that Battlestar was finally coming back. So this whole kind of prelude had created a lot of anticipation, a lot of energy around Battlestar and about seeing the the original show brought back. And so, you know, it was with that kind of energy and passion and excitement in the Battlestar fan community that the word came out that all of a sudden the show was going to come back via the sci-fi channel, but it wasn't going to be a continuation. It was going to be a a reimagining. Well, when they heard the reimagining word, you know, it hit everybody. In the gut, because the thought was, Oh oh here they go again, just as they've always done, networks and and studios, when they bring back classics, for the most part, in fans' eyes. They usually destroy it. Classics that are normally brought back in a way that the great majority of fans, generally speaking, do not agree with. It's not to say what's right or wrong, but nevertheless, there's a great deal of fear in fans' eyes when they hear their favorite show is being brought back and reimagined. And because I had been so involved in bringing it back and because I always felt that this was an incredible story, but because of the technology of the day and because the networks uh, at that time, due to the prevailing conditions, political, sociological of the day, did not want to get into the more provocative, deeper subject matter of the core story of Battlestar. So, therefore... I'd always felt that the show should be brought back and that the core premise should be explored more deeply, which is what I started doing in the comic books and also started doing in the novels, which were a projection of the original show, 25 years in the future, where we have a new generation of our of our children now, the same ages as we are. And we progressed the show, evolved the Cylons and obviously wanted to create a, a far more provocative show, uh, and that was kind of the the where the trailer came from. That's where the books and the comic books came from. And that was the direction I had always wanted to go in. But I can only tell you that when we heard the reimagining, the first thought was that they were just going to bring it back and do something really cheesy and stupid and silly with it. And all I knew was it was going to be a reimagined. So we were all angry and frustrated and pissed off. So... When it was mentioned that Ron Moore was on board, I had actually been told by my ex-girlfriend that, you know, when I was trying to bring back Battlestar that I should contact Ron Moore because he would be the perfect guy to do it. She had mentioned that. I didn't know Ron Moore, really. I didn't know much of Ron Moore's work. Um, So I was really kind of in the dark there in terms of who he was and what he was about. So when I was still mounting a campaign to try to persuade the networks, to continue the reimagining version and go to a continuation, which is what the vast majority of the fans at that time really were asking for. So I think that there was, again, the conditions of that time is in the Battlestar community, and I will only say this, is that the vast majority of Battlestar fans are not vocal. Many of them, obviously there's a vocal minority that speaks up, but most Battlestar fans, you know, are from three different generations, and they carry on with their lives, and they're not necessarily sci-fi fans. Many are, but many aren't. So many of them don't go to conventions. Many of them are not involved in all the happenings and what's going on. But the vocal fans were really really in an uproar. I think when I finally decided to help produce the 25th Battlestar Galactic Anniversary Convention, which I had never done before, I decided that Ron Moore should definitely be invited, along with all, you know, Glenn Larson, along with Tom DeSanto, along with everybody who had wanted to do a version of Battlestar. And even Glenn Larson had wanted to do the Pegasus story. So they had tried to put together that deal and uh, were not able to accomplish that. So there was a number of people trying to put together their own version of Battlestar, obviously including me. And fans, you know, all had their own ideas, obviously, about what they would like to see. And I just felt, say, coming to a a point in my life where I can see the uh, larger playing field where I'm not so caught up in in, in narrow points of view. I'm able to, whether I agree or disagree or whether it's frustrating or not, I think I had arrived finally at a place of being able to realize that there are many ways to do anything, and certainly whether I agreed or didn't, other people had just as much right or more right than me, obviously Universal owns Battlestar, to do whatever they want to do with the story, and that even though I had invested so much time and energy, And obviously it was painful for me. They had every right to do what they wanted to do. And that in the end, it would be in the fans hands. Anyway, they were the ones who make the final vote. So I just decided to invite everybody. And when I met Ron Moore, I have to say that I genuinely felt that this was a good human being, a very intelligent human being, very down to earth. You know, you meet a lot of people in this business and when you meet somebody that you can appreciate and, uh, for me, it's been rare and when you meet those people, it's really a pleasure. So I, I liked Runmore. I mean, I will say that I liked Ron Moore from the first moment that I met him. I met him and his wife. We had a, a small talk up in the, uh, the green room before he went down to uh, talk to the audience, but we didn't get a chance to get into anything in depth, but uh, I'm sure that he had read some of the articles that I had read trying to promote the continuation, trying to build a case for that, and and trying to represent the fans as as best as I could. And obviously, I wasn't the only voice doing that, but I was certainly one of them. He went down, and everybody, the hall was filled with great anticipation because uh, he was going to show excerpts of the new show and talk about what he was doing. And uh, it was a very, very angry, upset, hostile group of of fans. And, you know, you you have to look for both sides. I can understand because fans have felt betrayed and let down for years. People were had a right to be scared and terrified and angry and frustrated. But again, I can only say this looking back, I thought Ron Moore had a lot of balls and courage to get up there and talk to such a hostile audience and show what he had to show. And really his intelligence, his vision, The way he laid out everything, I just found him a very, very compelling artist. And yes, I still in my own mind and heart felt that the continuation was the best way to go. But after meeting Ron Moore, it would certainly have been great to have Ron Moore putting together the continuation. Because I don't even put myself in the same room as Ron Moore, even though I wanted to go in more provocative directions with Battlestar. I think Ron Moore has the guts and the balls to go where very few men or women artists are willing to go into very deep, profound, provocative areas that really illuminate the human condition in ways that may or may not be easy to take and to watch and to look at because it forces all of us to look at ourselves and ask deep, profound questions and uh, and maybe uh, be more accountable to ourselves and to the world. So I, I think that I really admired him for that and so I just think that having a chance to talk to him opened up a door that I wasn't out to bring anybody down I was just angry and frustrated like everybody else was it was deeply wounding and and hurtful for me to watch something that put so much energy into not going to uh, continue as a continuation but at the same time I'd kind of come to a place in my life where I, I've been through enough pain enough heartache enough disappointment to um, take a deep breath and uh, and step back for a moment and reassess the situation and look at something a little more objectively and kind of say, okay, what's happening here? And being a spiritual person, sometimes I, I feel that what needs to happen sometimes does happen. And so I, I kind of was willing to open up the door and explore possibilities. And when Ron Moore uh, emailed me and asked if I might be open if the show gets picked up, and by at that time, there was no absolute um pick up on, on the show after the four-hour miniseries. In fact, as far as I know, the show wasn't going to be picked up. and It was only after the Sky Channel actually pumped in some money and decided to, uh, to get involved that the show actually did get picked up. And actually, as we know, it, it played over in England first, that first season. That's why it played over there first. And then after right. it played, it obviously came over here. But I think a lot of those downloads you know, in a way, kind of helped publicize the show. And so uh, when it finally played here, it played here to a pretty big rating. And I think uh, Sci-Fi recognized that they had something. And that first short season allowed them to uh, make the decision to pick it up and follow through with it. And I think they realized that they had something quite special. And because of the quality of the writing, the producing, the directing, and everything else, they were able to create a show that um, was so compelling that even those fans who were angry and frustrated, a great many of them, you know, would come back and watch week after week after week. And ultimately, we started getting involved in the new show and the characters and the plots. So it's it's really, for me, getting a chance to, and being asked to, to play a role in the show. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I, for the first time in my life, where I had said many no's in my career, for all the wrong reasons, by the way. I was very idealistic and, and also... Um, certain things were, were very challenging and scary to me. And I, I don't want to go into the the depths of that, but I, a lot of things that came my way brought up a lot of fear of expectation inside of me. And, uh, I said, no, when I should have said yes, looking back and taking the risk. And finally I'd grown to a place in my life where I could say yes. And, uh, I did say yes. And I was still conflicted inside, not about Ron Moore, but conflicted about, my loyalties to the original show and to having worked so hard to bring it back along with many others, I said yes. And when I got a chance to hear about the role and basically got the first script for the first time in several years, I was excited about acting again. And I was excited about um, as I arrived on the set and got to know everybody and realized that the show, they had put together an incredible crew cast and production team, I was blown away that they had actually not only made the right decision, but Ron in and company and everybody that got hired to come on board. It's rare when such an extraordinarily talented company comes together, as is the case with Battlestar Galactica. I've been on many, many shows, and it's not that there aren't talented people here and there, but it's rare to have such a such a uniformly uh, what's the word I'm searching for, where the whole team. Is amazing, and, and I, you know, I had a similar experience, you know, from a different perspective. Twenty eight years earlier on the original Battlestar. it was a great group of people, great group of actors, and, and writers. But here I was, twenty eight years later, obviously in a new time frame when you can do much more provocative material.
0: But here I was,
1: all these years later, playing a you know a, a role that certainly, obviously, wasn't the uh, the starring role in the show, and obviously is a continuing character. Although at that time it was just a guest star. Which I had no idea. I mean, there was, there was a possibility of coming back, but, uh, you know, I, I had no idea that, that uh, the character would develop and have only been overjoyed to have that happen because for me, the character I'm playing now is so much more complex and interesting and, and profound and challenging to play that it, it really rekindled my passion and, uh, and joy for acting it's it's going to affect people in very profound ways and obviously some people are not going to be able to deal with how powerful you know this story is but at the same time how many shows have the courage to go in that direction and to go all the way without compromises and i have to take my hat off to the sci-fi channel and to Ron Moore and David Icke and their team that they have had that kind of commitment to a vision and that not allowed anybody to force them to compromise that vision Uh, so often unfortunately you know when you're trying to satisfy everybody you end up watering something down and and, uh, pulling back and uh, for me so many shows you know that started out great they lose the very thing that made them special because everybody is afraid of alienating anybody and the trouble is you end up when you try to satisfy everybody you end up satisfying nobody Uh, I guess that's again another long-winded answer to a question (laughs)